Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths, and our business topic today is how upstream marketing can help drive sustainable growth with my guest, Kristen Kurth, who is also the author of Upstream Marketing, Unlock Growth Using the Combined Principles of Insight Plus Identity Plus Innovation. Now, Kristen has has had an accomplished career in both upstream and downstream marketing, and her perspective comes from working across a wide range of industries, and those industries include consumer and luxury goods, financial services, automotive, healthcare, biotech, publishing, real estate, hospitality, technology, and we're losing breath here, and for an array of nonprofits. Now, Kristen co-founded Equibrand Consulting, which helps clients from startups to Fortune 100 companies strategize, plan, and launch integrated brand-building initiatives. Brands are so important these days. And for anybody who thinks that you you don't have a personal brand, you need to think again about that. We may talk about that. So she has developed an extensive ecosystem of marketing and brand-building partners who contribute to Equibrand. And she began her career in advertising as a media planner on the Procter & Gamble business. She then worked in account management at BBDO and Ogilvy Chicago on packaged good businesses, spending the majority of her career in Ogilvy at Ogilvy, where she was a senior partner and worldwide management supervisor in change of the Wilson Sporting Goods business globally. Now, I know who Wilson Sporting Goods is. So, Kristen, welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. It's good to have you here. Oh, and by the way, thank you for the book. It's on my desk as we speak. Yay. I'm so happy and very happy to be here to have a conversation. Thanks so much for inviting me. Oh, listen, I love to speak with people like you have this wealth of business, you know, this wealth of everything that you do, I don't even know how to to quite say it, you know, just this wealth of experience and a book. I love chatting with authors. There's just, it's that little, like the icing on the cake. You've done all this stuff and now you've written a book about it. I love speaking with authors. So here you are. I'm, and it's really fun to think about, you know, really writing a book because I feel like it that book represents a culmination of, you know, my partner and my, you know, all my all, all of our years of experience combined, you know, from advertising to strategy consulting to, you know, case studies, working with clients, both, you know, Fortune 100s down to, you know, startups. So it's really has a lot in there and we've studied some of the biggest and best brands out there and it's kind of cool that within that we've been able to share some of the best practices so hopefully your listeners will get a lot of information on a lot of different areas of uh, marketing
Hello? I'm sorry. My headphone just cut out there. What I, what I wanted to ask you before we get too deep into my questions is how you started, not the book, because the book is kind of where we're at now, but how you started the business that you've started, that you've, what took you into brand building and marketing? Is that something that, yeah. that seems like it's a pretty, you had to really think about that before you started to it. I think it's something you stumble into. Well, we actually did stumble into it. I'll tell you the story. I knew, uh, I guess what uh, my partner and husband likes to say is uh, necessity is the mother of invention. So I'll tell the story about uh, starting Equibrand, but I always knew that I wanted to be in advertising and that was sort of my thing. I think I had a neighbor down the street growing up in East Lansing, Michigan, who was, you know, in an advertising program at Michigan State University, and I was fascinated. And I think it's the psychology and the creativity and the strategy that I loved. And I was the geek who, you know, ordered ad aids to my high, my college uh, dorm and my college, you know, roommates would go, why are you ordering this stuff? And I knew I was going to go into advertising. It took a while to get there, which is also another story. But what happened with um Equibrand, I left the agency business when I had um, my first daughter. You know, it was really hard to be traveling the globe and being a mom. And I ended up um, leaving and going to a small design firm for a few years with a creative partner from another agency life. And we were working, I was actually doing strategy for the first time for a lot of financial services brands like Visa, American Express, and it was applying the, the discipline of packaged goods marketing, which I grew up in, and applying that to different categories, and I found that fascinating. Well, my husband um, ended up taking a job with a strategy firm out in the Bay Area. We were living in Chicago at the time, so that was a big move for us. At the time, we had three little kids, and we were moving our whole family to the West Coast, and my husband's company was really operating at the height of the dot-com era, and it was exciting. It was kind of heading west for the gold rush, so to speak, and we ended up coming out here, and less than a year after my husband started his job, it, the company imploded. Um, not enough revenue to support all right. the new hires. That happened so during that dot-com. I mean, it was yeah. stratospheric, and then it was like, oh, crap. Across the board, pretty much. It was for so many people. And and honestly, I was interviewing for jobs back in Chicago, and he was trying to get a client. And it was kind of like whoever gets the first, you know, viable option wins, and we're going to go in that direction. And and Tim ended up um, connecting, you know, how that all that serendipity um, ends up connecting with uh, uh, our first client who ended up giving us a very small project that turned into two or three years of amazing work in life sciences and medical devices. And that was the start of our company. We really, you know, had no intention, wasn't something we planned out. It was something that we dove into with, you know, our, our entire beings. And that was 20 years ago. Are you still in California? Yes. Right now we're in the Bay Area still. Our clients are all over. 
Yeah, I was born and raised in the Bay Area. That's what I was asking because it's oh. you know my original stomping grounds. I'm in Southwest Louisiana. You talk about a culture shock. People <laughs> people will ask me, well, why did you leave the San Francisco Bay Area for the Deep South? And I will say with all seriousness, I married a Southerner. I won't be doing that again. So there you have it. <laughs> Oh, yeah, and the Bay Area is such a funky place right now. Lots yeah. of exciting things going on and lots of people, um, you know, really during COVID, a lot of people, you know, left the area to go find different places to live and work, you know, more remotely. Well, it happens. You know, the gold rush in some ways is now gone. <laughs> but, you know, it was an interesting <laughs> analogy because when I was growing up, you know, born and raised there, we heard about the gold rush. We went to the missions. We, you know, we knew our state. We loved our state. Beautiful, beautiful part of the country. Okay, so let's let's talk about, so you stayed. I mean, you wound up staying there. We and then did. I'm guessing that y'all started working together or how did that work out? Yes, it was um, very interesting in that we, we kind of have different skill sets. You know, Tim's more of the analytical, fact-based, um, you know, uh, consultant because he, he and I met in advertising and then a few years later he, he went to two very um, – amazing strategy consulting firms in marketing. He went back to grad school and then ended up at two, two great firms in Chicago. And so he went a different path. I stayed in the advertising realm and I bring more of, I guess the right brain creativity, messaging. I love working with clients. I do love the analytical process of doing research, but, um, I, I think we kind of brought different skill sets. So it worked in that we could, you know, bring different things to the party. And then we have another um, kind of the third leg of the stool. We've had, um, you know, a consultant working with us for many years who came from packaged goods, more of a VP of marketing type, and she brought the operational know-how. So the three of us combined were really good team for working with clients that were trying to build strong brands. And see that you just explained what was in the back of my mind. Like how did you make such a, well, it's a wide swath that you've been working in. I was like, okay, how did she get there? I really wanted to know how did you get from here to here to, packaging really so thanks yeah, for, yeah, like, yeah, I have one yeah. of those curious brains what the heck how did that happen <sighs> it's so, pretty funny when I think about it myself I know and you know how this when, all just transpired exactly and people don't if you don't kind of sit sometimes and say how did I get here you know what were the components who were the people what was what was my why what was my need oh mm-hmm. Okay, I didn't do it all on my own. I had my husband. I had my my business partner. Cool beans. You know, once you figure that yeah. out, yeah, it's it's easy to see how you you covered all of these areas, and you know, did it in what sounds like a very short amount of time. Yeah, the business ramped up really quickly as Equibrand, and it was really exciting you know, at the beginning because there was just so much work and 
we were we felt good because I and I think this has sort of been our mode um, for the past 20 years in, in a lot of times, you know, and, and, and there were a couple of times when, you know, the revenue softened, I think after 2008. And so it's kind mm-hmm. of, you know, inconsistent, but the one thing we always say is, you know, if we continue to really keep our clients as the center of our bullseye and deliver the best quality work, all of the rest will fall into line. And that's really been a blessing in our business that we do a ton of work for repeat clients, a yeah. huge part of our revenue every year from clients we've clients worked with in the past. And, you know, that's, that's a great way to do it. You know, don't just kind of give up or, you know, this whole word pivot that came to be is almost a gospel word during, you know, COVID. I hate that word enhance, adapt, build, but don't just pivot away from the people who got you where you are. I actually love it. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, because, you know, it's not like all of a sudden you take a left turn and everything's all, you know, better. Hunky-dory, I know. Yeah, it's it's an act of adapting, and that has been what we've seen so much in the last year is and why we think upstream marketing is so relevant right now is that we've seen so many of our clients and businesses around us adapting to a changing environment. And this isn't the first time this has happened. This has happened, you know, many, many times uh, over the last few decades. But because of COVID, there are certain industries that really, in order to survive, had to take a very deep look at their business model and say, hey, we got to figure out a way to, to make revenue when people aren't walking into our store or our service, or we can't, you know, have direct contact with our customers. Imagine the challenges out there. And, and a lot of big brands kind of pushed hold, you know, pause on their downstream marketing, which is more the advertising and the digital marketing, et cetera, and had to push pause because, you know, they didn't want to, they wanted to, you know, preserve those resources. So what a lot of businesses did in the time was perfect for it was to really look at what they were doing upstream, which is in more the strategic context. So, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I was thinking about that pivoting versus adapting or, you know, changing or rethinking. That's really what happened. Exactly. And when I hear the word pivot these days, I just automatically assume, probably incorrectly so, but it's, you know, one of those gospel words, you know, you're going to take it whichever way you want to take it. But I just kind of assume that you just said, oh, well, that's not working. I'm going to go do something different. And my loyal customers, consumers, clients can just go pound sand. Wasn't deliberate, but that was the end result, right? Right. Absolutely. And listen, talking about 2008, when I when I hear the, the year 2008, I always think about there's, there was this little smart-alecky thing going around the Deep South that said the last person out of Louisiana or Texas or whatever state you're in, turn the lights off. We're done. <laughs> we weren't. I, I love it. It was tough. You know, it's like close off the lights, y'all. Yeah. We're leaving. But we made right. it. Oh, we did make it. Yes, so, yes, yes, yes. 
But let's talk about the difference between upstream and downstream. I mean, can you define, and you have a bit, but Kristen, can you define a bit what the difference, the major differences are between upstream and downstream so people can, mm-hmm. so I can follow along because I'm not sure. sure. I'm not sure. going to blame the audience. I'm not entirely sure I understand it. Yeah, no, downstream marketing is really what most people think of when they think of marketing. You know, I, I teach at um, a local university and I'll ask a classroom of students, you know, um, you know, what is the definition of marketing? You know, what is marketing really? And you'll get, you know, answers like, oh, it's a, the brand's identity. It's, it's marketing is, you know, advertising, sales, you know, Sales, I knew that was going to come. It's always yeah, sales. Yeah, what you do, what you do to acquire, you know, customers. Um, marketing, I, I, my favorite definition, which is actually a culmination of a bunch of different, uh, you know, definitions I've read over time, but my favorite definition that I use is marketing is, um, you know, the process of meeting customer needs profitably. Oh. Meeting customer needs profitably. And hmm. upstream marketing is the process of identifying and fulfilling customer needs to drive growth and build strong brands. So it's really everything that happens. We like to say, you know, using a fishing analogy, it's everything that happens before the hook is in the water. You know, the planning, where am I going to fish? What kind of, you know, is it a lake, a river? Is it a, you know, an ocean? All the things that need to be thought through before you actually just, you know, cast and put the hook in the water. All that, you know, beyond that is downstream marketing. You know, the, the tactical things that you do to acquire and retain customers. So, can you give us some examples? And while you were talking about upstream, you know, where are you going to put the hook, where are you going to fish? Mm-hmm. I immediately, mm-hmm. this is how my brain works, I'll apologize right now, but I immediately went to, because I've seen it happen, okay, I, I've landed the big flounder. Now what the heck do I do? Because I didn't prepare to how to deal with this client or this, you know, whatever, this this industry. Do you find that? Do people like, oh, I've got this, i got this, i got, oh, shoot, i got this. Yes. Oh my gosh. Think about companies like, I mean, even like our own that started with one client, you know, that was just, you're scrambling. And this happens a lot. I mean, in startups, you know, they're, right. they're really working hard, building a product or a service offering and they finally get, oh my gosh, super lucky. There's a customer there. What ends up happening, and this is no fault of the business at all, they scramble to meet the needs of that customer and to, you know, make sure that the offering is just right and that they're, you know, they're doing the right things to keep that customer happy. What ends up happening sometimes in those businesses, and most businesses are working at the light of speed now, it's really, really fast. And a lot of tactics are happening very quickly in our new, you know, in a digital world. So what they don't get the chance to do is to back up a little bit 
you know, do what's required before they've acquired a customer. It sometimes needs to be backfilled. And it's a very, you know, discrete process that can happen over the, you know, a couple of months, two to three months. But a lot of businesses just never do it or they never take the time to pause to do it, which is, you know, really looking at how you are positioning your brand in the marketplace, how you are looking at the the broader landscape of customers and how you might meet the needs of more customers with more product offerings, and then actually finding strategic growth areas that you can continue to innovate against. That's a tall order. And when you're scrambling downstream, you know, to produce, 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 and get messages in front of everybody and make sure you're doing, you know, social media and your SEO is on, you know, it's very difficult, you know, to back up, especially if you're, you know, in a smaller business or a a sole proprietorship where you don't have the luxury of time to really think through what needs to happen. And what we like to say for upstream if you get your upstream strategy right, even if it's rough, it's better than just scrambling downstream because what you end up doing is saving a ton of time, effort, and resources. There are certain things that you could say no to very easily if you have an upstream strategy. You wouldn't be wasting a lot of money spending downstream on activities that aren't really in line with you know, the brand's purpose and it's it's vision. I was reading in your book. I've, I've got it. I've got little sticky notes all over it. Poor little thing. <laughs> it's got little Yay. yellow tabs sticking everywhere. But I'm looking at what it, you call a mini case example about cardiac surgeons, and you say they tend to be rational and precise in their language, but. When they got the two words, I guess, the benefits, patient safety and ease of use, you found some kind of interesting reactions there. Yes. So one of the things that we make is part of this, you know, there's a seven-step process that we outline in the book, and they're, you know, pretty discrete steps. And as you start to develop the positioning you know, all throughout that process is the use of insight. Insight is all about getting a deeper level of customer understanding. And we do that at so many different points along the way. And customer-driven companies are the ones that are, you know, the ones that have sustainable growth and are the winners, the ones that put the customer at the center. And in medical devices, imagine this. We start, That was our actual, our, one of our first client wins, and it was a medical device company that made pacemakers and defibrillators and stents, and they were working with a big agency in New York, a more consumer-driven agency. In fact, I remember somebody saying that the same team that worked on a dog food account was working on this medical device business, which is oh. absolutely crazy in my mind. Slightly it different target. It was very strange. Uh, dog food, but you know, you, we all want the best for our dog, obviously, but we <laughs> all we need, need to know is: is it more. going to keep them healthy? You know, is it? Does it have right. a bunch of garbage? And we just need. There's certain things we need to know. Right. Other than that, we don't really care much. Right. So what we ended up, how we actually got our very first 
small project from this company was the, you know, VP of marketing, they were combining four business units and the head of marketing said, you know, I'm about ready to, you know, write a check for, you know, over $10 million to run, you know, feel good advertising, you know, about our company because we're in, you know, we're about helping people live better lives, you know, with, with, you know, our, our, you know, cardiac devices, you know, and just extending life and all the beauty and, you know, good things. And they were going to um, advertise just kind of a feel good campaign. And we, we said, you know, let's do a little bit of analysis and spent a few weeks looking at their business and talking to people, the insight part again. And, you know, what we came to find out when somebody's having an acute cardiac event. So imagine somebody's having a heart attack, you know, they're not in a position to say, please give me the ABC stent or give me the XYZ stent. You know, they're doctors certainly or nurse um, or, you know, operating room, you know, management. Those are the people making the, the buying decisions in, in this category. It's not the consumer. The consumer no. will maybe never even know what brand they have inside of them because they're unconscious, certainly when, when an acute, acute event occurs. So we said, save that money, you know, re, rethink this and let's go find, you know, healthcare experts who talk to doctors and nurses and hospital administrators. And that's exactly what we did. We developed a bunch of um, concepts. We call them whiteboard concepts. And each concept had a different benefit area within it. So one might be focused on safety, you know, that when you do this, you know, just the outcome, you know, that you can be confident, you know, cardiac surgeon, that this is a safe, you know, procedure with a safe device. And, and then we tested a bunch of others, maybe 10, you know, 12, sometimes different concepts. And that having those conversations with the cardiologists themselves in usually their, you know, phone call interviews or one-on-one interviews, we learned that, you know, there was pushback on that language around safety, that they didn't, uh, you know, that was not the, the language that was best used to, you know, inspire them to choose a certain brand. Ease of use, on the other hand, was the benefit that really floated to the top. And so we built an entire concept around ease of use, and that became the winning Uber concept that the company was positioned on. So it's a process, and it's really um, all about combining insight and then turning that into, you know, the elements of brand building, which is the identity piece, you know, how we message, how we build our value proposition. And then using all of that as a platform, that's what drives innovation, is continuing to talk to those customers and understand where their needs aren't being met, where there are new opportunities for taking a business or a brand into, you know, the next five to 10 years. So it all fits together, but I'm so happy that you picked that as an example because it's, um, it's a clear example of, you know, picking the wrong target, which is very expensive. Imagine consumer advertising, huge television campaigns that they were going to do versus going straight to the doctors, which is a manageable amount of people. And you can actually talk to them either directly or at medical conferences, et cetera. 
and they're the ones in charge. I really have to ask this because, seriously, I'm never going to need a facelift. While you were t- telling me about the other company, <laughs> my eyebrows went straight up to my hairline. I looked permanently surprised. Like, what? Even I knew that was not a good idea. It just, I mean, it just mm-hmm. sucked. It's a language, but at so many levels, it didn't make a lick of sense to me. And I'm not a marketing person. Well, I am to some degree, mm-hmm. but not like you guys are. So mm-hmm. I think what you're saying here, what I'm hearing is that you need to really, before you start on any of this, is identify who your your target market is. And in this case, it wasn't a TV ad. I mean, it's not you're selling no. toilet paper. Everybody needs toilet paper. Not everybody needs a stint. Yes, and exactly like what's sometimes counterintuitive is when you look at, you know, some of the best in brands that are you know, profiled in the book, one of the examples I love to use is Nike. Think about the Nike brand and, and think about a target bullseye. Nike at the very center of their target bullseye is a performance athlete. Everything they do as a business and a brand is with that customer in mind. That's why if you go to the Nike campus, there are people out, you know, playing sports, they're using the equipment, they're iterating the the equipment and, you know, obviously running shoes. And it's all about performance athletes and that's their core target and they know it and they've, held to that, you know, for all of these years with great success. Now, on the other hand, you know, I wear Nikes. Uh, the weekend warrior might, you know, wear Nikes. There are a lot of kids running around in Nikes and grandmas and Nikes and all of that. Um, so they have a much larger consumption market. So that would be like the outer ring, you know, beyond the bullseye. That's a trickle-down effect, right? It is. And okay. it's an influencer effect as well, uh, that people aspire, you know, to be like that, you know, core target in some categories. But it's a, more tightly you define your core target, the more successful you will be. And the problem with many businesses, and again, I like to talk about businesses across sizes, because there might be somebody listening who is, a, you know, a two to five person operation right now. And there's another that might be, you know, a huge multinational. The one thing that's common across all of those businesses is that nobody wants to leave anything on the table. What that ends up resulting in is, you know, trying to be all things to all people. Well, we have this target and we have that target and we have this target, that target. Part of doing upstream marketing correctly is saying, but who are you building this brand for? Who is really at the center of the bullseye? And that should be the customer that, you know, has the highest hurdles. You know, where you're going to have to really deliver on those unique needs and make sure that you get everything right around that core customer. And then you message to all of those other customers that you're out there. It's not like, you know, you just go after this. It's not the only one you actually, you know, spend dollars against or resource against, but in building your positioning or your value proposition, you know, have your mind's eye on that very unique center of bullseye and you'll be more successful. Listen, I agree with you as a web developer. I get this all the time because I'll be consulting with my possible new client or my current client and 
I'll say, okay, who is your target market? And without fail, Kristen, without fail, oh, it's everybody. No, it's not. And, I mean, I I just wait for it. I just meet myself and wait for it because it's going to happen. But yeah, if you can, always. you know, do what you're talking about and saying, well, you know, I like to work with women. I like to work with helping women with their finances. I like to work with, I don't know, families. You know, I've got a client now that she mm-hmm. is a, she's got this wonderful idea for parenting. She's a terrific parent. And, but it's a part of a bigger, bigger, bigger thing. And we were talking yesterday, so you have to winnow it down. You have to tighten yep. it, get some yep index cards start writing you know yeah. this 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 and this in the index cards winnow it all down and then shred some of those darn cards you don't need them anymore yeah and, and you know and one thing that again part of the early process of upstream marketing is looking at um you know what we build a customer framework so imagine parents are the you know the the center of the bullseye generally Parents, but then you can say there are parents from different households, different um, demographics, you know, different regions, all of that kind of stuff. You can define them that way. But what we like to do is define our targets attitudinally. So you could be anywhere in the world, imagine building a framework where all of these ways of describing parents are down the left-hand side of the page. And across the top are your customer segments. And those oh. segments are unique because they, they, you know, that particular group clusters around a certain attitude about parenting. So, I mean, I'm just making this up really right now, but let's say there are oh, keep some going. parents. I'm thinking this through right now. Let's say there are certain parents who are really, really focused on safety. And if they were filling out a survey, the number one job that they, you know, that they um, feel is their most important job is keeping their children safe. So, you know, them. I mean, people who are really ultra safe and, you know, want to make sure when they, you know, put their child in somebody else's car that the seat belts work and that the car seat is, is installed properly. Um, so let's say there's a safety segment. Then there's another segment that might be all about, um, let's say, self-esteem, you know, and they discipline differently. So they might be the parent segment that is all about, you know, positive reinforcement, positive parenting to build self-esteem. And again, the, you know, you, these will cross over from segment to segment, but by and large, you know, we use quantitative segmentation. So they're filling out 200 question surveys, which, you know, again, you don't have to do that. If you're a smaller business, you can start to think about this in terms of what attitudinal segments exist. And then, really think about your offering. And if you had to say, again, parents is too broad to be the center of our bullseye, what kind of parents and what are their thinking patterns and what do they believe in are, should be the center of our bullseye? And you see how it all starts to be refined and tightened until you have, you know, a true segment that you're going after that could really, you know, that where your offering could really resonate. And then right. you know, the, question you know, the question is, is how you message against it, where do you go to find them, et cetera. So successful parenting is too broad, and I get that we talked about that. 
Oh, that I mean that's fascinating. So she will have plenty to say when when I hear Good. from her later today. Well, you have her call me. I am happy to chat with her if she wants oh, to to noodle that, that a little bit. I yeah, I feel certain that she would because she's I mean she's really one of the smartest people I've ever known and we have our own little personal mastermind every Thursday and we're still kind of noodling things out ourselves. So yeah, I will yes. I will let her know and thank you. So let's oh, yeah. let's talk about the upstream marketing framework. Are there steps? I mean, there are in the book. Can you go over some of those yeah. steps very quickly so people go, Oh, I did sure. that, I did that. What the heck is that? Yeah, yeah. The framework itself is built on these principles that I've mentioned, inside identity and innovation. In the book, we talk about, you know, framing questions. And in the insight section, it's about, you know, where do we play? Where do we place our bets? Where are we going to, what markets, what customers, all that stuff. Identity, we say, is the framework question is how to win. So how do we design a value proposition or build a brand that's actually going to help us, you know, be relevant and different, you know, maximizing relevance and differentiation is all positioning. And then how might we is the last question under innovation where we're thinking about creating new things and testing them and learning from them. So there's a whole framework in the book, but in terms of the simple, you know, seven steps of upstream marketing, if somebody wanted to just think about how to do this, you know, starting tomorrow, where we would start is, you know, in the beginning is, and and this really follows how we do consulting projects with our clients and it's setting the strategic direction. And the first thing you need to do is like, look at where you are today, you know, for better, for worse. And, you know, where are you headed? You know, what's the North star, what's your five year vision. And again, it could be any amount of time, but where do you want to be? And upstream marketing is what helps you bridge the gap from where you are today to where you're headed. So step one is setting strategic direction. It's, you know, doing a three C's analysis, which is looking at the company, the customer, and the competitors, and and really laying that out and, and doing a full analysis to figure out where you stand. Next is that customer framework, creating the customer framework that I was describing. You know, what are the, the various attitudinal clusters, you know, of our overall target? You know, where do they come together and how they view the category? And are they big enough? You know, is that a sizable segment? What are their behaviors? How much of, you know, our category is they buying today? Where do they live? You know, what do they look like demographically? You fill in all of that. Then you're selecting opportunity areas. Okay, so we want to go after parents who are, you know, let's say it's an educational project that place a high um, priority on education, you know, a mindset around education that is different from others. So let's say we're going to do that as our, that we're going to choose that opportunity area among the parenting group. Step four is really doing the deep dive, and that's more of a creative process of understanding them, doing research with them, finding out what their needs are, what benefits are they seeking. Step five, then, we usually do an ideation session, and, you know, that's a basic brainstorm with some creative thinkers, and we think about various ways to position the brand, meaning, you know, what are we going to stand for in the minds of those, you know, parents that we want to be talking to, um, you know, come up with 
hundreds of ideas. And then what we do in um, step six is we write those up into concepts. We, we optimize those concepts by going back out and talking to customers again, another insight touch point. And we show, you know, just blank. They're not ads. They're nothing salesy. They're just this product offers this. And these are the proof points, and this is, you know, the, you know, the core benefit is within that. Those are concept boards. And from all of that, you know, some clients go on to do quantitative testing of concepts, but then you're at step seven. You've got a pretty tight strategy in place. It's finalizing that, and you start turning it over to downstream. You know, okay, so how are we going to bring this tactically to life in the marketplace? It's finalizing it, launching, and then learning from it, and, you know, the cycle continues to go on and on and on. You know, we're, we're really big on creating something, testing it, continually testing it, and then learning from it, and then you iterate. So that's briefly, you know, the seven steps, and it's something, you know, that you can do as a small company, you know, take a couple of days off and just go off site and try to, you know, use, there's a bunch of frameworks in the book and, and lots on our website, um, upstreammarketing.com that can help, you know, that conversation within your own company. You know, one of the, and I love how you're explaining this. One of my very earliest business insights, if you will. I've always been an entrepreneur. I'm an introvert. I don't play well with others. I have to be alone. <laughs> so I've created, and I mean that from the bottom of my heart. You do not want me in your office. I don't play well with others. I run with scissors, and if you want coffee, you can get it your own damn self. I'm not doing it. <laughs> so, so I work alone. But one of my very early insights as to business was basically what you're talking about here. Somebody had said to me, it was during one of these podcast episodes, it was probably 10, 12, 13 years ago, I've been doing this a long time, she said the worst mistake I ever made was not researching this wonderful idea that I had and this wonderful business that I was created. I didn't research it and I lost, the way she put it, was a crap ton of money. So you're basically saying the same thing, research it. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. To, you know, and, and one of the huge questions that we ask that, you know, every business should ask, this is the most important is, you know, what do you know about your important customers that your competitors don't know? Oh, you know, that, what is that proprietary insight that you have about customers? That's a deeper level of understanding that your competitors don't have because they're in lies competitive advantage. And, you know, it's as simple as that. And research, we do, you know, lots of research in all different shapes and sizes and forms and everything from ad hoc where, you know, I've worked with startups where, you know, we've had a bunch of customers around a room, you know, sharing pizza and ideas and just listening to them talk. You're just soaking it up to doing very formal you know, qualitative research in focus group settings or whatever. Um, the key is you need to do, a, you know, balanced. I always, I teach marketing research. So a, a balance of qualitative and quantitative is always best. So some clients have a very high level of um, confidence 
just listening and taking qualitative and taking it to the next level. The problem with that is that you're only talking to a very small number of your customers if you're doing qualitative. Quantitative, on the other hand, is we can run these concepts through quantitative screens and actually see which concept wins. And I have to tell you, from all of the work I've done over the past 20 years, this is actually pretty unusual, but when we come out of qualitative research and we think we have the Uber concept and we put it in a testing scenario with like, let's say three other concepts, the concept that, that rose to the top is either the number one or it's tied for number one in quant research. So there's a lot of, um, you know, it's really what the client's level of comfort is in taking qualitative and actually moving forward with it, making big, you know, investment decisions. So, you know, depending on how much you're investing, you know, it might make a lot of sense to do the quant piece, but it's, um, you know, we just suggest doing it in a balanced way where you do some qualitative to get at the real underlying whys. You know, why do you feel that way? Oh, that's interesting. Why is that? You know, it's asking why over and over and over and getting those insights that you can't get from a survey. So it's um, research. The insight piece is you know, just key. If that's not in the mix, then, you know, that's, that's why, you know, 80, 90% of all new businesses fail. And that makes sense. And you know what I have noticed over time, it's getting better because people are tending to be a little bit more authentic. Sometimes they're too authentic online, but that's another discussion. And, (laughs) but it used to be that you had to, you felt like you had to hold everything tight. You couldn't share what you were thinking or what you even wanted to ask because somebody might take it. They might take your idea, that corporate kind of idea, which seems to be fading. Thank goodness. But I've noticed that people say, well, you know, I've got, and they're in love with their ideas. I mean, they are so passionate, but they haven't done any asking they haven't picked up the phone or sent a LinkedIn message you to say listen would you you know spend a little bit of time with me and I'm going to tell you right now people will spend time with you you offered Larry Wingett I don't know if if you know who Larry Wingett is he's written six New York Times bestsellers he's a pit bull of personal development or and listen he saved my podcast Years ago, I, you know, nobody was around to teach me how to do this. I was just doing it and winging it like I do everything else in life. And I could not find consistent guests. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to give this up. I'm going to stop. But I knew who Larry Winkett was. I had been a fan of the little TV show that he'd had many years ago. And I sent him a note on Facebook. Because I'm convinced that entrepreneurs really do want to help other people. Nothing has changed mm-hmm. my mind about that. And I sent him a note just out of the blue and told him who I was, that I had interviewed a few of his friends like Bob Berg and you know a few other people, and that I had been a fan of his TV show. And I asked if he would be interested in being a guest on my podcast. And I walked out of my office, went and opened the refrigerator door, because that's how I meditate. You stick your head in there and you just go blank. (laughs) (laughs) My chicken brain doesn't allow me to really meditate, so I use the open refrigerator door syndrome. (laughs) Okay, I'm doing that right after we hang up. I'm telling you, you'll come out of there completely refreshed. You know, your power bill may go up a bit, but you'll feel better. (laughs) So. Yeah, I came back 15 minutes later, opened up Facebook, opened up before Messenger, and 
there's a message from Larry Wingett, who is really one of my favorite people in the world, said, I'd love to. I was like, oh, he saved my podcast. I've told him this. He knows. But, again, it goes back to you can't get questions answered if you don't ask them. So however yeah. you're going yeah. to do it, try to find people who are willing to share and help you out. And there's a lot more of them than not is in my experience. Absolutely. I mean, one of the examples, when we wrote this book and we're trying to get it published and, you know, out there, we're like, who would be the dream person to write a little something on the, you know, the cover of the book for us? And Tim and I were both, you know, Philip Kotler, you know, the, the father of marketing. If anybody has ever taken a marketing course, it, undergrad, graduate, or is, you know, in marketing, you've, you've probably used Philip Kotler's textbooks. He's a professor emeritus at Northwestern University and such high regard for this, this man. And Tim reached out to him and moments later, he's retired now, but, you know, I'm sure he hears from so many people every day and, and being the teacher that he was, students that he's had over the years, immediately returned it, said, send it to me. And within days, he wrote this beautiful, um, you know, endorsement of the book. And you would, and you right. would never, never would have imagined he had the time to do that. And, you know, it really, it's really amazing what, you know, when you spread, you know, goodness around and you support others and even businesses now where I, I liked what you were saying, everything was held so tightly you yeah. know, competitive this, competitive that. Terrible. The best thing I think that's opened up in recent years is the idea of collaborating with your competitors. Why not? You know, the pies are big enough. In a lot of categories, there's room for everyone and everybody, every company delivers, you know, something unique. And, you know, just working with others to, like, have – better access to distribution channels. You know, that's the whole magic of the pharmaceutical industry is they're, you know, makers of pharmaceuticals are collaborating with their competitors in order to gain, you know, distribution and everybody wins. It's one plus one equals three. And I believe that in terms of supporting other authors, supporting people who are launching products and I'm always willing to help someone because I think what goes around comes around and, and we're all better off for doing that. Oh, I agree. And listen, I will ask, like I did with Larry Wingett, if I see somebody and I really admire what they're doing, I'm not going to, don't, listen, audience, listen carefully, don't ever start a conversation or email or an inquir inquiry with, can I pick your brain? Just don't do it. Mm. The answer is no. It's just no. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I will say we can have a conversation, but I'd like my brain and if you don't mind. I'm kind of fond of it. But, but, you know, ask. Always just ask. Be polite. Be respectful. I think you'll be shocked by the responses you get and shocked in a very happy dance kind of a way. Definitely, definitely. It's, you know, it's, I admire the work that you do and I would love to learn more. You know, exactly. who wouldn't, it's, I, who wouldn't I want, who well, want I guess there are people who wouldn't want to take the time, but I certainly would. I love sharing ideas. 
I think it, I learn, you know, you learn, you get something out of it. They get something out of it. One plus one equals three again. And this is exactly, you just described the purpose of my podcast. Being an introvert, I live 15 miles as a crow flies from the Gulf of Mexico, which is a good thing. I have fresh shrimp, fresh oysters, fresh everything. <laughs> I go oh, fishing in the grocery store, but you know, it's, it's a very small where I live, it's all, it was a village. It's grown up a bit. But I am not going to meet people like you, even if I weren't an introvert, in the parking lot of my local Walmart. I just would not have the opportunity to meet you. So I get to, through this wonderful podcast, I get to meet people exactly like you from all over the world, literally. And you get to share everything that you're talking about today, which I'm finding fascinating, with a very large audience. It's a win-win that's why I do it. It's and it's a a grand purpose. I I believe in it. And we have, you know, experts along so many different areas. And, you know, I'm a sponge to this day. And I love when people, you know, even in companies that are established, the companies of today that are have been established and been around for I don't care, even a hundred plus years. The ones that behave like startups and are always in a position to learn, you know, are teachable. Those are the ones that win. Those are the ones that are open to new ideas, are willing to continue to learn. And I love working with businesses like that and people like that because I think we all have a ton to learn from one another and experiences to share. And that's, you know, how we build successful businesses. Exactly. The worst phrase anybody in a company can say or utter is, well, we've always done it that way. Oh, gosh. Definitely. Good luck to Many, you. many times have worked. Yeah. Yep. Because that just doesn't play anymore. It doesn't work. And if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I just, to me, yeah. I, I, I have a problem with that. I want to break everything. <laughs> I just want to go in and, you know, there's always something you know, there's room for improvement in pretty much, you know, every business and every process. And certainly now with technology, too, it's just you can't have that mindset. You have to have the mindset of, you know, go in and really, you know, learn from your customers, put them at the forefront, understand their experience and their journey. And you'll learn a lot about, you know, how you run your own business. And don't get tunnel vision about it. It's so easy to operate from our own biases, whether we recognize them or not. Ask questions. Yeah. Be curious. Always. Yep. I, I agree. And it's really fun to work with people like that who have an openness and a willingness to continue to learn and share ideas with others and, you know, to admit, you know, who knows everything. There's so much out there. So much content. I was listening to a, a podcast the other day about a guy about starting an online business. And it was, you know, hilarious. That I'm listening to it for, you know, how he went about the process of starting, he, you know, affiliate marketing and online businesses. And I don't even know how I got on, the, on the, this podcast. But he was talking about his example was a learn to crochet, you know, lesson. Oh. You know, here's a step to, you know, emails. All I thought I've about heard that time and time was, again. I was, wanna, that was back like, 20 years ago. Everybody was crocheting. <laughs> Remember that? I know. I can't do it. Well, my, my grandmother taught me how to crochet when I was about, you know, five or six years old. 
And of course, like I have enough time to learn how to crochet today, barely, but it just made me think, oh my gosh, I haven't crocheted in, you know, X number of years. I really do want to learn how to crochet, but it's that kind of stuff where you're still, you know, inside just, you know, a sponge. And, and that is, you know, that's where you make yourself open to new ideas that could actually, you know, turn into huge business driving ventures. You've gone, gone. Now I'm thinking about crochet. My grandmother tried to teach me when I was a kid. She couldn't teach me because I'm ambidextrous. She couldn't figure out which hand I was supposed to be using. I, I never oh, did. I remember learn. crocheting a skirt in fourth grade. I wore a uniform to school. And my mom let me stay home till about 11 o'clock. I mean, school started at 8 because I had to finish crocheting a skirt that I wore to school for free dress day that day. I will never forget that. And it's just, I mean, oh my gosh, ugly is the day is long, but it was my creation and I got to wear it to school. But um, I'm enough on that. Uh, Do you still have it? No, I don't. I I think I would. I think I would have. But when I was living in Chicago, we had a flooded basement and I had to get a total saver of everything sentimental. But um, I think I lost it in that flood, which is such a bummer. But, oh, I have it in my mind. It's deeply seared into my memory bank. (laughs) Right. And, you know, when we're talking about these things, you never know what's going to not trigger you. That's kind of a trigger word yeah but you know make you go oh okay I remember and this was really pre WordPress you know pre graphical user interface which is you know how we make all these beautiful things on on websites but back in the day pretty much all you could have was basically you could get into a board and people would sell you seeds or crochet patterns. Yeah. <laughs> that was pretty yeah. much it. I'm, ha- I'm, I'm seriously going to go have to sit in a corner and contemplate my life <laughs> for a while here. <laughs> I'm remembering things that, you know, really got me where I am now. But I have to tell you, I bought a computer. I bought this wonderful $3,000 computer before there was an internet because I knew it was a boat anchor. It was MS-DOS. You know, I've, in fact, oh I've got the, gosh. I've got one or two of the binders still in my closet. It was a boat oh. anchor. It wasn't anything other than a really expensive filing cabinet, but I knew, I knew that somehow, some way I was going to make a living with a computer and by golly, I have done so. Oh, my gosh. That's a great memory. And that's the kind of stuff, you know, when you're talking to your customers, ask them questions like that. You know, what was your earliest memory of parenting? You know, think about, you know, when you think about that parenting example again, if you're talking to parents, you know, bring up those things because that's the stuff that ends up becoming fodder for downstream you know, the, the idea oh, that, a, you know, a brand is built from both rational right. and emotional elements and having an understanding of both the rational and the emotional is, you know, just makes your marketing communications downstream that much richer, but it's driven from upstream insight. That's the a good 
storytelling is so important yeah. because, yes, yes, you know, yes. we all resonate to stories. I mean, that's before we had, you know, tablets that were chiseled. We had storytelling. Everything is, you know, handed down. This has been a fascinating conversation. Before, and we're out of time. How did that happen? Oh, my so gosh. Kristen, <laughs> no. Where do you have any kind of final thoughts that you want to share with the audience? And then where can people find you? Oh, sure. No, I think, you know, my final advice would be if you're trying or struggling with how to do this in your own organization, um, you know, download the book or buy it. Um, Upstream marketing is available on anywhere you can find books, Amazon and Barnes and Noble and Goodreads, et cetera. But also on the website, upstreammarketing.com. Um, feel free to reach out to me and or download some of the the diagrams even from the book and we use those as worksheets with our clients and it just helps you most of this is about putting it down on paper you know codifying some of this stuff some companies will say oh I already have that my my positioning it's all in my head we'll put it down on paper and it doesn't have to it doesn't have to be fancy just try and start. You can start this tomorrow or even this afternoon. But I'm going to be knitting. I mean, crocheting. Crocheting. <laughs> you know, I've got, I, when I couldn't crochet, this, I don't even know why I'm sharing this. When I couldn't crochet, I thought, well, I can at least, and I can't sew. Don't ask me to put a button on. Just give it to Goodwill. I'm not going to do it. But I can, I can embroider like a fiend. And I learned that Ooh. from my grandma and my great-grandma and my mom, and I was the fourth generation of, you know, women in this family, females in this family, who put together a quilt that is in my, my possession right now. One of my, you if set, you post it? I, I will. See it. I'll take a picture of it. It's, and I can tell my own stitches. I can tell how old I was with some of those stitches. I was so bad. Nobody corrected it. And it's a very treasured thing but I can you know I can't crochet and I will not sew so but I can embroider anything you're ambidextrous I can't that's actually wild I love that it's crazy well listen that's why you're in marketing I don't know it takes ambidexterity to be in marketing you know (laughs) yeah I can kind of both the the mind working yeah right for the longest kind of time I thought I was left brain and then I realized I was actually creative but my right brain was a little bit messy I had a lot of emotions and garbage going on there so I moved to the left Mm -hmm. side which is like a really clean (laughs) attic and then eventually I opened it up and kind of we're mixing again (laughs) you don't know what you don't know about yourself until you you know ask questions there we go again Kristen thank you so much I have loved chatting with you it has been fascinating I'm going to ask my friend Tammy so if you get a phone call from a gal named Tammy I am happy to chat it will be her and honestly it has just been terrific and I do advise that people go get the book on my my uh, podcast link there is a link where you can download chapter one so start there so listen thank you for everybody for being here with us 
before I say goodbye, I would like to remind our audience to be sure to look for us in iTunes and Prime and Audible. Honestly, anywhere else you can stream your business podcast. You can't throw a stick on the Internet without hitting us. Just look at your partner in Success Radio and take us along on your success journey. Kristen, thank you. Oh, thank you. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab. 